Support for Louisiana Eats comes from Zataran's Hot Sauce, specially blended for poor boys, red beans and rice, jambalaya, and all of your favorite Louisiana Eats. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Every four years, soccer fans from every corner of the globe are brought together in the spirit of international competition to watch the World Cup. If you're watching a match in Louisiana, there's a good chance you're doing so over drinks at a bar. On this week's show, we raise a glass to intercontinental camaraderie by tasting five exotic spirits from across the globe. We begin our celebration the way they do in China, with a Baijiu toast. Then, Bohemian bartender George Nemec introduces us to the national drink of the Czech Republic, Bekarovka. From there, we explore Peru's favorite libation, Pisco, with charismatic Pisco producer Johnny Schuler, before traveling to Japan with Jesse Fallowitz. Jesse's an American expat who's the moving force behind the resurrection of an ancient Japanese liqueur called Mizu Shochu. Four drinks, and then we're down for the count. Count Eduardo Branca, that is. We speak with Count Eduardo, the sixth generation of his family, to produce Ferne Branca, a bitter liqueur that Italians have loved for over 170 years. It's the World Cup of Liquors on this week's Louisiana Eats. Have you ever tasted the Chinese liquor Baijiu? I hadn't even heard of it until I met Baijiu enthusiast and writer Derek Sandhouse. Originally from the U.S. and now based out of China, Derek joined us to discuss the origins of Baijiu and its recent emergence in the West. Well, I'd like to know, Derek, how a guy from Kansas got so <laughs> wrapped up in this exotic Chinese liquor, Baijiu. Well, I was living and working in China for a number of years, and Baijiu, for most foreigners who live in China, becomes one of those things that you're afraid of. Because <laughs> whenever you do business in China, um, someone will crack a bottle of Baijiu at your business meeting, and the expectation is that you're going to drink the entire bottle before the meeting's over. And what's the proof on that? And the proof is usually about 53%, so like Holy 106 moly. So proof? you're in trouble. Right. Um, <laughs> people have a very aggressive introduction to Baijiu most of the time. And, you know, I think most people would respond negatively if their first taste of whiskey was here, try this, you know, smoky scotch and drink the whole bottle before you're done. When I was getting into Baijiu, people told me um, that they'd done studies, that there's a flavor threshold uh, a point at which you go from not liking a drink to liking it. So with you know beer or coffee, you need five to ten glasses before you say, this is a gross drink to something I enjoy drinking. And 
the rumor was Baijo was so hard to like that it took 300 shots. So I started by chronicling my conversion from someone that didn't like Baijo to someone that enjoyed it by drinking 300 shots of it. And I think... How long did that take? I had the first shot of Baijo that I truly enjoyed around 60 to 65. And I think it had nothing to do with how much volume of Baijo I consumed. It had to do with finding the right brand. Just something that was really high quality, had a balanced flavor, and was just really easy to drink. A lot of Westerners are confused because they go into the grocery store and they just see all these different bottles, lots of Chinese characters, different price points, and they don't know where to begin. So one thing that I wanted to do was, A, to see if I could overcome my fear of Baijo, which I did rather quickly, and B, to see if I could find a way to make it accessible as a category to other people that wanted to learn about it. Because Baijo is the most widely consumed uh, spirit in the world. Every year they produce somewhere in the neighborhood of four to eight billion gallons of it. So Yikes! <laughs> wow. And what does Baijiu mean to the people of China? Baijiu is literally white liquor, but it means, you know, connection. It means getting to know people. Um, whenever you have a holiday meal, whenever you have a celebration, like a wedding or whenever you have a business meeting, you always have a bottle of Baijiu on the table. So people like to say you can't set the table without alcohol. So it's a really important part of Chinese socializing and the culinary tradition over there. So tell us, what are the origins of Baijiu? Well, Baijiu is about a thousand-year-old Chinese drink. Um, China has a wine-making tradition that spans almost seven to 9,000 years. And, you know, about a thousand years ago, distillation technology arrived in China and they began making all sorts of spirits. And as that s technology spread throughout China, um, several different types of unique spirits um, emerged in different parts of China. So those are collectively what we call Baijiu today. It's a category of at least a dozen distinct types of spirits that are made in the traditional Chinese way. How would you describe the taste to people? Well, it's tricky because there's so many different kinds of baijiu, but the most popular baijiu is uh, called Strong Aroma. It's from southwestern China, and it has a very fiery, um, peppery taste that has some kind of powerful fruit notes. So you can get um, pineapple, apricot, and other uh, tropical fruits in there. Why is baijiu only making the trip to America now? I think the reason for that is just that China itself is only starting to open itself up to the world. Um, you had basically with Baijiu an industry that was a complete cottage industry up until the 20th century. Um, when the communist revolution happened um, in the late 40s, the government took over the Baijiu industry and really brought it into the modern era. So the first 30 years of Mao, you had a completely closed country. Almost nothing was leaving the country. And then once China started modernizing its markets, um, people in China for the first time could taste Baijiu that was produced at the other end of the country because it was available on the free market. Wow. So with Baijiu, it's a very old drink, but in a certain sense, it's very new because there's not this 
culture of connoisseurship where you have familiarity with the baijiu from all over the country. So people in China are just starting to figure baijiu out. And as they're doing that, they're starting to look overseas. And I think there is a market for China here. What's the strategy that baijiu is using to take over America? I think the two best paths to appeal to Americans with baijiu are one through the through Chinese restaurants. Uh, for the first time in America, we're starting to see people show an interest in authentic Chinese cuisine, not just the chop suey San Francisco Chinatown yes. uh, Chinese food. And in the same way that you go to a Japanese restaurant and you drink sake, you go to a Turkish restaurant and have rocky, you need to be able to go to a Chinese restaurant and have baijiu because that is how people eat in China. Wow. So that's, that's the one strategy. The other is to appeal to people that are looking for new flavors in their cocktails. There's a lot of cocktail bars in China, particularly in uh, Shanghai and Beijing, that are starting to experiment with baijiu cocktails. I think they're really leading the way. But there's also, I know, a lot of uh, bars in California, in New York, that are starting to incorporate baijiu cocktails into their menu. Um, because... I think for bartenders, this is a really exciting category because yeah. it's pretty much uncharted territory. Yeah. It's got very strong flavors. What do you see uh, is the difference between the way Americans consume spirits and the way the Chinese consume baijiu? The main difference is that baijiu is consumed exclusively with meals. You don't find baijiu at the karaoke bar, you don't find baijiu at the nightclubs. It's something that you only drink while the meal's being served, and it's supposed to complement the flavors in the food. They both bring out the best in each other. Whereas in America, I think most people will not drink neat, hard liquor with their main courses. The idea with baijiu and with Chinese alcohol generally is respect. That when you are drinking with someone, you never drink alone. You never sip on a baijiu. You always drink it in a toast to show your respect to someone else. So, ganbe. Ganbe. It means dry the glass. Okay. <laughs> That was Baijiu enthusiast Derek Sandhouse. Bekarovka is an ancient herbal digestive, which has been in continuous production in the Czech Republic since 1807. Its recipe has been a closely guarded secret, passed on from one generation to another, and today only two people in the world know it. Brand ambassador George Nemec joined us to explain how Bekarovka is used in his homeland and the story behind its secrets. Well, I'm fairly new to the factory and the new family of Jan Becker. And I feel very privileged, I must say, because they've never had a brand ambassador before. It's been always the family members. So I'm very new to the whole world of Becker of Guides history, and, and I'm only met a few years ago the, the secret recipe keepers. 
So I'm trying to dig as much as I can for our, for our bartenders because they are curious, they're geeky, they want to know as much uh, as possible. But it is difficult, it is difficult. Obviously, I'm not going to get all of it, but I'm working on it as we speak, <laughs> basically. How many herbs go into making it? We say over 20 different herbs and spices, and which means come... it could be a 30, it could be more. Okay, well, and these herbs and spices... They come from all over the world. All over the world, yes. Um, there's quite interesting fact about all herbs and spices. Uh, they need to be handpicked by the family law. We are reaching to Asia, to Caribbean islands, all the way to Africa, and obviously Europe. So, how do people drink Bekarovka? We drink Bekarovka uh, chilled. We just leave it in a fridge. Let's say it's sitting among four to minus seven degrees. And we like it as a shot. We just pour it in small shot glasses. That's how we drink it the most. But obviously different countries, even different ages, you know, you enjoy your Bekarovka in different ways. Uh, my grandma, she had her bottle of Bekarovka in a freezer, for example, and she was sipping on it on daily basis, you know, <laughs> just just to get her skin nice and smooth and, and her stomach in a nice order. Uh, but then young people, they enjoy Bekarovka drinking with tonic water and slice of lemon, fresh lemon, which I must say that this Bekarovka tonic, what we call beton, it's quite an old drink, very simple. It's basically gin and tonic, but Bekarovka with tonic. It's dating back to... 1967, where we had the World mm -hmm. Expo in Montreal. Yes. The Czech stands, uh, we were asking for national drink. We just wanted a simple national cocktail, which we would be hosting our visitors. So this is when Beton got created. And it's still in uh, most of the bars, cocktail bars, restaurants and pubs. This would be the cocktail, yeah, national cocktail. Well, perhaps it's my own naivete, which most people would not accuse me of around a cocktail bar, but I honestly had not seen the Bekarovka until you poured me some the other day. So, is it widely available in the U.S.? It is, uh, it is being distributed and brought to country, obviously, by uh, Panorica U.S., Oh, Perno uh, Ricard. Yeah. Ah. Uh, but uh, it is still a uh, fairly small and boutique uh, and niche brand within the whole portfolio. So obviously a lot of focus goes on bigger bigger products such as um, Absolute and Shivans and, and Jeans, etc., etc. I guess we, we just have to um, deserve the space in the uh, American market first and we've been working on it in the last couple of years and uh, I've got a strong belief that it will just find its own very natural way to where it should be sitting. But it has never been uh, marketed properly, it has never been uh, distributed all around the United States of uh, America. Well. Welcome to Louisiana, honey. We're really happy to have this here. And I know that there's a traditional Czech toast mm -hmm. that is involved in its consumption. Apparently, you've got some sort of like little ritual. Mm -hmm. um, you sat down here with me, and it's like tinier than a demitasse cup. It's uh -huh. this precious little cup mm -hmm. that you've 
poured a little sample into. Mm -hmm. So what traditionally do you do next? As you say, the cup is not as big as a regular one-ounce cup. It's smaller simply because we didn't want to have bigger cups, not in order to get somebody drunk, but healthy. Uh, it was your healthy. dose of medicine. Exactly right, <laughs> exactly right. And what we do in Czech Republic, we we simply just look into, we've got this little tradition, we, we have to look into people's eyes, into, into our friends' uh, eyes when we do our little toast. And instead of cheers, we say nazdraví. Nazdraví. Beautiful. <laughs> You must have Czech roots somewhere out there that you don't know about. And uh, yes, so we say nazdraví, which means to the health. Okay, well. So zdraví means health, to be to be healthy. So uh, yeah, we just look into our eyes, think of whatever beautiful our families, our friends, and we just say nazdraví. 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 George Nemec and the ancient, delicious and mysterious Czechoslovakian liquor, Bekorovka. After a short break, we travel from the Czech Republic to Italy for a taste of that country's most enduring and unique drinks, Ferne Branca. We meet Count Eduardo Branca, sixth-generation scion of Fratelli Branca, when Louisiana Eats returns. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, from Dock to Pot, offering nine varieties of fresh Gulf fish daily, lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. Do you have some Louisiana Eats on your mind? We'd like to hear about it. So we've opened a phone line to take your calls. Leave us a message at 504-867-9128. Or send us an email to LouisianaEats at poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. I'm Eduardo Branca. I'm sixth generation in Fratelli Branca. Fratelli Branca is a historic Italian distillery established in 1845 that today is world-renowned. It's also a family-run business. We had the opportunity to speak with Count Eduardo Branca, a sixth-generation member of the Branca family, about the 170-year-old history of his family's company and their flagship product, Ferne Branca. So tell me about your family's history in Italy. The business goes back 
1845? Yeah. Yeah. The company actually started before Italy was united. So it's really unbelievable. And uh, what uh, one of the most amazing things, I think, was like to create a spirit in 1845 with not your local herbs, but more of an international herb. So they come from four different continents all around the world, except Australia and New Zealand, because Australian was just discovered and New Zealand had yet to be discovered, actually. And like most of the spirits, Fernet Branca was born as a medicine before. And for this reason, actually, we were the only spirits in during prohibitionism to be sold legally because we were not a spirit, we were a medicine because was born in Milan in those times were not so nice, it was a little bit dirty, and we had a lot of cholera. And so it was born as an anti-choleric, actually. And so you had small patches, and in the hospital you have like a spoon, and they'll give it to the people because it helps digest. And as well, some of the properties of the herbs, actually, they open the upper part of your stomach, and so you will get hungry. And the problem with cholera, actually, was that you stop eating, you get thin, 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 and then, unfortunately, you pass away, actually. But that was how it was born, and we did like this for... 30 years and then we said you know people a lot of people loved it and so was we became a spirit actually so your let's see great 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 mm -hmm. great great grandfather was he a pharmacist there are two stories actually it depends with how you speak if you speak with uh, the I will call them white collar. They will tell you Fernet Branca was done by Mr. Branca, that was an herborist, and with the help with a Swedish chemist that was named Fernet. And instead, if you speak with the workers, they will tell you, no, 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 that's not true. We invented the name because we registered the company in 1845, but we go a couple of years before, actually. And uh, what they will say is, like, when Fernet Branca is produced, actually, uh, you have hot and cold infusion and a little bit of maceration for some of the herbs. But with the hot infusion and with aloe, actually, when you mix it, you have a, a, you used to have, like, you know, the Smurf, Gargamel, like the, the big... Smurf? Uh, yeah, you know? <laughs> and, you know, Gargamel with the fire under it and mixing, like, a kind of a potion. And uh, one of the herbs, actually, is aloe, and you, you had to do it by hand in those times like this. And when you take out the pail, it was really shining and very clear. And in dialect from Milanese, Fernet is clean iron, actually. Oh. So it depends really with who you speak. So they will say the workers in the company, they will say, you know what, we are, you know, we are the inventor of the name Fernet. And instead, you know, the, the, black color, the white colors will tell you, no, 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 no. So this move to Argentina that sort of happened around 1850, so five years after you all began? Yeah. It was. Why in the world would an Italian company open up a branch in Argentina in 1850? Okay, allora, I uh, will answer you this question in two different ways. First of all, we moved in Argentina because uh, most of in Italy used to be a very, very poor country. The southern part of Italy was very, very poor, so a lot of people need to emigrate and you know it here in the United States. And Argentina during that period was one of the countries where most of the Italians go so we said you know we we are going to bring a little bit of italy with you and so we moved there and second of all it's the history of fernet branca is a little bit weird being so international being one of the first uh, drinks to have so many different herbs inside and uh, we immediately everybody wanted to try this thing that was so international 
So consequently, you all are considered to be the national drink of Argentina? Yep. We are the national drink of Argentina because they drink it in a different way. Instead of having as a digestive as they do it in Italy, they will have it with Coke. So they will have Fernet and Coke. And if I may add one thing, the most amazing thing about Fernet Branca is... Uh, wherever you go in the world, they will teach you another way of drinking Fernet Branca. But like Argentina is Fernet and Coke, you will have Italy and Germany and Spain, you will have it as a digestive. Instead, if you go in the northern countries like Sweden, Norway and Denmark, they will consider it a little bit more as a morning drink because they drink, you know, they like to have something a little bit stronger in the morning. And so they will have their breakfast and afterwards they will have and they will have with their breakfast in the morning a Fernet Branca actually. If you come in the States, here will be more of as a shot or a cocktail ingredient, actually. So it really depends wherever you go around the world. There's a different feeling of Fernet Branca. I was fascinated to read that apparently it's very common in Italy for gentlemen to have a little Fernet Branca in their coffee in the oh, morning. Yeah. We call it Caffè Corretto. And uh, uh, I will translate it with coffee correct uh, maybe i don't know if i'm telling it right but it's because one of the ingredients inside of fernet branca we have 27 herbs and one of them is fernet and then you know when you drink coffee without any sugar inside it's a little bit bitter and with the bitter of fernet branca is like a melting pot and it's amazing actually so it really depends how many employees do you have oh uh, in italy I uh, will say a little bit over 80, and then we have agents that will sell on, on, on the family. So we're a small, small family company. We're not the big guys, and I, I'm happy about it, and I know that you know, we'll never be big as one of the you know, major shot companies or drink companies, but I'm happy because Fernet Branca is something that you need to appreciate and you need to learn. You need to go through some spirits and understand the, the level of work that we do and as well appreciate spirits in their most pure way, actually. Because when you drink Fernand Branca, you're part of a group. You're part of my family. It's a family, Fernand Branca. Count Eduardo Branca, sixth generation scion of Fratelli Branca. Celebrity fits Johnny Schuler like a glove. He's a Peruvian restaurateur, reality television star, and the master distiller at Pisco Portone. For those unfamiliar with Pisco, it's a grape-based white spirit that, thanks to Johnny and some innovative mixologists, is making a big comeback in both the southern and northern hemispheres. Johnny took us back to Pisco's beginning, to the spirit's pious origins in the New World. The whole story begins when the conquistadores arrive in America. 
It's funny, the, they, they were followed by uh, several groups of missionaries, right? Priests, uh, Jesuits, uh, Benedictines, Franciscans, mercenaries. There were a lot of them, a lot of them. Ones were looking for gold and the other ones were looking for souls. I think both were looking for gold, right? That's great. But uh, to their dismay, when, uh, when they arrived in America, they found that there was no uh, vitis vinifera. There were no grapes in this continent. And uh, no grapes meant no wine. Poppy, no wine meant no mass on Sunday. Oh, right. Uh-oh. So very quickly, uh, Carlos V, Charles V, put a put a price for the first subject of the Spanish crown who would produce wine in America and the continent. And believe it or not, this not happened in Napa. This happened in near Cusco in 1557 in an hacienda called Marcahuasi near the city of Cusco. But very quickly. Um, the production of wine grew to proportions that King Philip II had to forbid the exportation of spirits from the new continent to the old continent. No more rum going from here back to over there, no more pisco, no more wine, because we're beginning to have a lot of better-priced products coming from this side of the world, going over back, and it was an unfair competition for them. So what did we have to do? We burnt it. Brandy is a brandy vine is a word that says burnt wine, right? Uh-huh. So we turned it into sort of a brandy. Pisco is not, it's its own category. Personally, I don't like to call it a brandy. But basically, to, to make it simple, yes. it is an unwooded, unaged brandy, right? Because it is not made from pomace. I, I am surprised that Pisco has not really translated into the American craft cocktail scene as much as one would expect it to. It's, I think there, there are several issues. I think um, we were talking about the, the fact that during the gold rush in San Francisco with the 49ers, 1849, Pisco became the drink of San Francisco, inasmuch as that today we're having a uh, renaissance of one of the, the iconic cocktails of San Francisco those days, which is the Pisco Punch, which was the famous or the drink in the bank exchange, which was the most or best appointed bar in San Francisco in those days. How do you make a Pisco Punch? Pincho, Pisco Punch, he never revealed. Duncan Nickel and the recipes was, were never known or were never revealed. He, he, what he did is he left his uh, simple syrup with pineapple from the day before. He would macerate, he would make an infusion, and he would make that with a little bit of lime juice and put pineapple chunks inside the glass and uh, soda. So it took us a long time, but then begins to uh, this revival of the Pisco Sour, because Pisco Sour is the iconic, the cocktail. It's so simple to make. Three, one, one. Three of Pisco, one of lime juice, one of simple syrup, ice, a little bit of egg white, shake it and drink it. Mm. Period. It's very, very simple. Then uh, Dale, I think, is responsible, and his his generation of, of, of master craft bartenders, to bring Pisco back into, into the mainstream. How's the marketing going in the United States? Is it fairly available now? Poppy, when we started about uh, five years ago with Porton in the American market, I think there were three, four or five Pisco brands in the market. Today, I think there's about 20 Peruvian Piscos in the market. So it's available and it's coming in and it's going to be coming in more and more. Coming in. We need to create the category. The category doesn't exist, right? Like vodka, gin, because everybody says, but what is it? So it's Pisco, but what is it? Right. Guys, it's Pisco, but what is it? <laughs> it's Pisco. How did you become involved with this business? Well, it's, it's not complicated because it's, I think it comes in tradition. My father was a Swiss who arrived uh, in Peru before World War II. 
Then during the war, he worked for the American government, building uh, camps for the extraction of rubber caucho in the Bolivian jungle, where he met my mother. I was born in the jungle in, in Bolivia. My Jimmy was born in Bolivia. And then the two others, after the war, my father moved back to Peru, where he put a chicken farm. And he went broke. So he put a sign on the highway, all the chicken you can eat for $2. And that turned into a restaurant that today, Sunday, I did almost 2,000 covers this past Sunday. I sit 800 people in the restaurant. How many of you are there actually? Because let's see, (laughs) you are the master distiller of Pisco. You have one of the oldest distilleries, distilleries. in America. Yeah, working you, distilleries in America. Beautiful. You have to see that, Poppy. It is. It, it, it's oh, really magical. I, I'm it's sure. made of adobe, old made of. Everything works by gravity. There was no electricity in the 1600s. Everything is original. It's untouched. It's it's a, an engineering masterpiece. It's one of those things that I think it should be. We should take this huge piece of thing and put it in a museum. You know, who you, built it a, originally? The Jesuits, of course, in the early 1600s. Yeah. And it still works like a Swiss watch. Well, I'm completely fascinated also by the fact that for seven years now, once a week, you've been making a television <laughs> show all about Pisco. Oh, Pisco. Por las rutas del Pisco con Johnny Schuler. Gracias al auspicio de El Instituto del Vino y del Pisco de la Universidad de San Martín de Porto. Now, how in the world do you have enough material? If somebody said... Okay, for seven years, we've been doing a show on vodka or gin or scotch. I still think people would say, well, that's really a stretch. <laughs> Isn't everybody tired of it yet? People said, you, your program won't last six months when I presented this to, to the channel. To, and I said, it won't last six months. I'm, All right, let's do it for six months. And now it's seven years, and uh, we're still working strong. And then my producer said, Johnny, hurry back because we have to film this thing over here we have to film for some reason i've been fortunately and i touch i touch wood uh people enjoy the way i uh carry the program they say johnny you're so uh you pull their legs i pull their i interview somebody i'm making faces behind their back or i'm <laughs> taking some of the, the ingredients out and hiding him everybody laughs i joke about everything i think i uh, my program is not very serious oh. it's very serious on the subject of pisco Yes. Because I do it only with good piscos and the piscos that I try. And if I try a pisco I don't like, I will not film it. Negra criolla y la moscatel. Dos piscazos sensacionales. No te lo pierdas. There's three or four singularities that make this product so special. First, it's made from wine and it's not made from pomace. Grappa is made from pomace, from the stems and skins that are left over from wine production. We are made from wine. Mm. And from wine is cognac, armagnac, and brandy de Jerez are made from wine. And pisco is distilled from wine. First singularity is that we are distilled to proof. We are not allowed to use water to regulate the alcoholic volume or content in the bottle, which is done by vodka, gin, rum, tequila, every spirit, whiskey, every spirit in the world. The normal way to produce it is to use water to regulate the proof. We cannot. We distill to proof. So the second singularity, there's no water. The third singularity is that we cannot put it into wood. Cognac needs wood. Armagnac needs wood. Brandy needs wood. We don't. Why? Why? Because we have eight grapes in the norm that we're allowed to make pisco from. Only eight grapes. Vitis vinifera, all of them, wine-making grapes. But we find that the aromatic structure 
of the each one of the grapes is what we want to smell and that's what we want to taste. We don't want exogenous importation of aromas into a product. What we have here, and I'm opening this little bottle, it's, it's a proper hour to, to taste, right? Oh, of course it is. So what happens here is that what we look, and we bring this to the nose, Poppy, mm. we're looking for grapes. We're looking for uh, structures of hay, straw. We're looking for aromas of raisins. We're looking for tropical fruits. And we don't want oak on it. And I'm getting all of yeah. that scent out yeah. of this glass. It has a beautiful, beautiful a nose. Bit, huh? Yeah, a beautiful caramel, nose. a little bit hay. Well, let's taste That's, it. I'd like let, to see if you think it tastes. Salud. 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 Here's to you, Papi. Mm. <sighs> oh, that's Grapey, raisins, right? It's beautiful. Poppy, for us, Pisco is not only a drink. For Peruvians, Pisco is part of our heritage, part of our tradition, part of our way of living. It's in our music. It's in our poetry. It's in our painting. It's in our dances. It's in our singing. Uh, we toast the birth of a kid with, with Pisco, and then we weep the death of a family member with Pisco. We, we, we use it for everything, right? Well, Johnny, thank you so much for bringing your beautiful portone to the United States and to my Louisiana Eats listeners and to me. I loved having <laughs> you here today, and thank you. Thank you, you. Bobby. Here's thank you very you. much. Thank you very much, and thank you for your invitation. Johnny Schuler, Master Distiller at Pisco Portone. What kind of liquor is Amaro? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarain's. Are you podcasting Louisiana Eats yet? If not, it's time to subscribe. Podcast listeners have access to full-length interviews with chefs like Edward Lee, Donald Link, and Michael Galata, along with new material that's never hit the airwaves before. Just visit poppytooker.com to subscribe. And while you're there, check out our new videos by filmmakers Marion Gay and Jonathan Evans. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What kind of liquor is Amaro? Amaro is a traditional bitter Italian digestif. Most Amaro recipes originated in the 19th century, often produced by monks and pharmacists as a stomach remedy. Fernet Branca sets itself apart by having a higher level of alcohol by volume than most. It's 39 percent, 
And Fernet Branca also has a lower sugar volume, making it one of the bitterest but most beloved of all Amaros. It's made with the secret combination of 27 herbs, but Amaros are also made with rhubarb, artichokes, unripe green walnuts, and even those pricey black truffles of Umbria. Feeling out of sorts? See if a little sip of Amaro will set you straight. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My head was spinning, I'd felt weird all day. Is there a full moon out? I forgot what to say. And so we drank furnace deep dark into the night until I felt a bit better. I felt kind of nice. You seem to hang on to every word that I'd say. Now, we meet another American expat living in Asia who's looking to introduce new flavors to American palates. Jesse Fallowitz is the founder of all things Mizu Shochu, an ancient liqueur from Japan that, thanks to Jesse and his Japanese counterparts, is entering a modern market. So shochu is a traditional Japanese spirit that's been around for nearly 500 years. And the idea behind it is that it's single distilled, and that's a very important part of the story. A single distillation really captures the natural essence of the raw ingredients. The second thing is that it uses a very special ingredient called koji. Koji is a microbe that's used in the fermentation to make a lot of things uh, in Japan. You make soy sauce from it. You make miso paste from it. You make uh, sake from it as well. Uh, Specifically for shochu, uh, it's used in the fermentation process, and it kind of replaces the malting process that you would normally have in a grain spirit. It's breaking down the starches into sugars. But not only is it doing the physical kind of chemistry of of the fermentation process, it's also adding a lot of flavor and aromatics to it as well. And then the third thing I would say that shochu is really all about is is this bit of rustic charm that it has. In the same way that a bourbon or a moonshine kind of has, you know, kind of southern charm to it, um, in Japan, shochu is really originated uh, in the southern part, the southern island of Kyushu. Down there in the south, southern part of Japan, it's very rural, kind of very countryside, very kind of agrarian area of Japan, and it's really kind of has this beautiful uh, rustic charm to it. I don't remember ever having been in an American sushi bar, restaurant, etc., where they were offering me shochu. What's up with that? So there's a really good reason behind that. And again, kind of talking about the southern Japanese charm that shochu has and the fact that it traces its roots really to that southern island of Kyushu in Japan, it's a little bit off the beaten path. Um, it's a part of Japan where you have, again, these are these are small mom-and-pop distilleries. Um, a lot of these uh, families that produce shochu don't get off that island too much. But it's just... They're, the business for shochu has been really, really good uh, over the last 15 years. And as a result of that, there hasn't really been a strong desire for these distilleries to export their products. The demand in, uh, domestically in Japan is so has been so good um, that they're really kind of focused on keeping their products small batch, you know, craft quality, very artisanal, um, and they don't want to compromise that by just produce overproducing and shipping out to other places. Now, there's a second part uh, of this as well, which is um, 
everybody does know sake here in the United States. That's yes. typically what you're going to drink when you go to a Japanese restaurant. Right. So Japanese food really became popular here in the U.S. in the 90s, let's say. You know, late 80s, 90s, you start to see it. During that time, sake was the trend in Japan. Uh, if you want to say the 70s, 80s, early 90s, sake was really kind of booming in Japan. So when all those restaurant owners and chefs came over to the United States and they were starting their own restaurants, or when um, you know Americans went over to Japan to kind of get some exposure as to what Japanese food was all about, in those days, everybody was drinking sake. So that's the drinking culture that we brought back to America. Um, and shochu was kind of overlooked at the time because it was still... Deep, uh, kind of a deep south thing in Japan. How is it drunk originally, and how do you drink it today? You really have two things happening in Japan when it comes to the cocktail scene, the, the craft cocktail scene. You have the old guard, and then you also have the new guard. The old guard really emulated um, Western cocktails of the 1920s and 1930s, those kind of hotel bars where they're very buttoned up in their tuxedo shirts and their white jackets and their bow ties. And those types of bars are really just going to be doing classic cocktails. That's that's pretty straightforward. And that's been a big thing in Japan for a long time. The younger generation of Japanese bartenders are guys that have worked in you know New York and San Francisco and London and have been exposed to more of a modern craft cocktail culture. These are people that have been exposed to a lot of different ingredients and are much more creative and experimental with what they're doing. When they come back to Japan to open their, their own bars or new bars, they kind of do a little bit of a fusion of East meets West, and you have this amazing combination of like Western ingredients, but then they have great pride in sourcing local ingredients as well. So now they're starting to use a lot of these kind of higher proof shochus, a lot of uh, Japanese and other Japanese ingredients as well, and putting those into their cocktails. Tell me about your master distiller. Who is he and how long has he been doing that? So his name is Hirofumi Okoba. Uh, we call him in Japanese, you'll say like Okoba-san. You add san to the end, and that's sort of a respectful um, kind of way of saying somebody's name. So Okoba-san uh, grew up very close to the distillery. Uh, he actually grew up on a farm. His mother uh, still owns the farm and still works on the farm. She's got to be in her 90s. She's out there. It's absolutely amazing to see, you know, this kind of culture, uh, farming culture that's down south there. So they still source our barley, some of our barley and some of our rice from that farm. And he just has a very close relationship uh, with all the local farmers in the region. So one of his mottos or one of the mottos of the distillery, it's 100% locally farmed ingredients. And that's a very big point for him, obviously, because he grew up as a farmer and he grew up in that region. So it's very important to him to have locally farmed ingredients. Well, I just can't wait to see what this is like. How would you suggest we taste this? I would suggest we try it neat first uh, and then add a little bit of ice as well to open it up. So on the nose, you're going to get a lot of really tropical notes. There's some cantaloupe, there's some banana, even like a banana bread kind of thing going on there. Yeah, there's something like toasty and lovely in the glass. Smell the the aroma is a little bit like a sake, but it's it a little bit it's it's fruity and there's some really nice things going on there. There's also a little bit of grassiness as well coming from the barley, but a lot of those kind of um, melon and banana notes are coming from that black koji rice. Okay, and now for the taste. Oh, it's delicious. Looks like vodka, not like vodka. Right. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's almost like if you somehow married a young whiskey with a sake with maybe, you know, vodka. But vodka is so neutral, whereas in this is not neutral at all. There's a lot of depth and a lot of character to it. 
Thank you so much for introducing me to the world of shochu. I'm in. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much, Poppy. This is awesome. Jesse Falowitz, founder of Mizu Shochu. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you missed an episode of Louisiana Eats? Hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. If you're not podcasting yet, it's time to subscribe. We've launched an exclusive podcast series, Louisiana Eats Quick Bites, made up of sneak previews of material that hasn't hit the airwaves yet and full-length interviews never heard on the show before. Visit our podcast page at poppytooker.com so you won't miss a single serving of our broadcast or our podcast. And give us a ring on our new committed phone line, 504-867-9128. We'd love to hear from you. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, Camellia Beans, and Rouse's Markets. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from the Bourbon House. From oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to producers Joe Schreiner, Sarah Holtz, and Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Don't forget to find our recipes and see what we're up to at poppytooker.com. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>